This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. You've probably seen a Ros Atkins video, he's the BBC analysis editor. He's become famous for his short, snappy videos that break down hard topics and make them easy to understand. We were due to talk to him a few weeks ago, but the Israel-Hamas war got in the way. And by the way, he's also a DJ. Welcome to The Bunker, Ros. Hi, Roz. Thanks for having me. (laughs) How long does it take to put together one of those one or two minute videos? Because you've got one out at the moment on the difference between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause. How long did it take you to assemble that? Well, our videos vary quite a lot in length. So the one that you're highlighting there, I think, was 65 seconds off the top of my head. It was certainly Mm -hmm. intended to, to be around a minute, while as we might make much longer videos, six, seven, eight minute videos on on other subjects. In the case of that one, we made it on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked to some of the BBC's digital teams who were interested in us helping with that distinction between a pause and a, and a ceasefire. And we set about working on it straight away. In that case, it was one of my closest colleagues, one of our producers, Michael Cox, who made that with me. And the two of us made that in a day. I should say, though, that all of our videos are a mixture of the team that works on them every single day and then us interacting with the much bigger BBC News operations. So we wouldn't make that in isolation. We would do some initial research, pull together a script that we think is accurate, but then we would share it both with our immediate editor, but also with a specialist on whatever subject we were making the video on. So the script will go through a number of checks, and then when it's been signed off by all the relevant people, the final part of the equation is I walk into the studio, record it, and in in that case, Michael edits it together. So in that case, it's a day. Sometimes there'll be four of us working on a video on a single day because we know getting it out is urgent. Mm Other times, what's an example I could give you? Recently, we did a a video about the electricity crisis in South Africa. We worked on that on and off for a couple of weeks, stopping it when there was something in the news that we needed to turn to. So uh, the delivery time, the amount of time it takes to make varies quite a lot. What's the very first thing you do when you've got the initial brief? Well, the first thing we do is double check that we've understood the initial brief. So one of the things that I think helps you explain things very well or equally can undermine your your efforts to explain something is if you haven't been really clear on what you're trying to do. So, for example, if you're doing a video about calls for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war, well, 
there are a number of different ways you could approach that subject. So in the case of that short video that you've mentioned, the way we wanted to approach it was to help people understand that some people were calling for a ceasefire, some people were calling for a humanitarian pause, and actually these two things were different. So the first thing we'll try and do is be absolutely clear on what precisely we're trying to explain within a subject. The second thing we'll do is be really clear on where the video is going because the kind of videos we make will vary according to where the primary place that we want to put them is. So what we make for YouTube will not be the same as what we make for the BBC News website, will not be what the same as necessarily what we make for the News at 10. So where it's going is important. And then where it's going also affects the duration, because of course, when you're explaining things, you don't explain things in a vacuum, you're explaining them in a particular circumstance. And so we need to have a pretty good guide on how long will we have to do this. Once we've answered all those questions, then we're in a position to start taking on the subject. One of the most important things you do is talk to colleagues all the time, isn't it? And I thought this was worth highlighting in your book because you make, it's a powerful point. When you're actually explaining something, you don't have to do it on your own. It's not like essay crisis mode. It's really important, isn't it, to actually use your colleagues as a sounding board? Yes. I mean, my, my long-suffering colleagues will attest to the fact that I'm not shy of asking a question. And I think one of the things that anyone who explains things well needs to do is to spot when you can't explain something, where there's an aspect of a subject which you think, actually, on this, I'm not entirely confident. It probably doesn't mean you don't know anything at all about it, but there's a difference between knowing something and being certain. And so I'm very keen on on checking with, with colleagues and do that all the time. And I can think all the way back through my career, there have been important moments where despite having done lots of preparation, I have turned to colleagues and they've really helped me. So, for example, years ago, I did a phone-in on the BBC World Service with the NATO, the then NATO Secretary General. And I'd done all this preparation and research and I'd really kind of put lots of time in it. And on the morning, and looking back on it, this seemed like a significant subject to hone in on, I realised I wasn't comfortable or confident enough talking about NATO's relationship with Russia. And so I contacted the BBC's then defence correspondent, Jonathan Marcus, and he very kindly made some time for me. And quite often the thing that I'll do is I'll listen to people and then I'll say back what I'm planning to say based on their advice. So I'll say, so if I summarise the relationship between NATO and Russia as this, would that be OK? And they might say, yeah, you've got it. Or they might say, actually, and that process of listening and then saying back is incredibly powerful. And I use that not just when I'm making explainer videos. I might be going into an important meeting at work and I need to explain some work that BBC Verify has been doing, for example, to some colleagues who are interested in it. I might say to my editor at BBC Verify, if I explained what we're doing this way, do you think that would work for this audience? So it's not that I can't have a stab at it myself, but by consulting colleagues, invariably, they improve the, the quality of what I'm passing on. And NATO and Russia aside, what are the difficult topics that you really find you have to put a lot of work into the explanation and the research beforehand? I think economics are particularly hard. I made a panorama earlier this year about the the state of the UK economy and particularly looking at, at wage growth and the long-term trends around wage growth and why the UK was performing as it was. And I was acutely aware that for this to be a valid piece of analysis, I needed to get into the detail. We couldn't shirk the detail. But equally, by the time we'd gone through it, we needed to make something that, if you weren't an expert in economics, still felt comprehensible, consumable, relevant to your life. And that was the first panorama I've made. And I really 
enjoyed seeing the the process that that team goes through and uh, October Films made it with us and and the the work that went into getting that panorama on air not just so it was coherent as a 30 minute program but we deliberately designed it so that there were going to be elements of it we could lift out and share on social media and to make a program on a subject that complicated but that important because essentially you're connecting macroeconomics with the individual experiences of, of millions of people in our country. I mean, that didn't happen in a day. That that took weeks of us researching, coming back to it, checking if how we're expressing it made sense. And And one of the challenges, I think, whenever you're explaining complicated subjects is that either you already know about it or you spend a lot of time making sure you learning about it. But either way, by the time you come to, to write about it or speak about it, you're going to know a lot more than the people who are listening to you, inevitably, through no fault of theirs. And it's really important at that stage to double check that what makes sense to you and your colleagues, because you've been working on this, also would make sense to someone who is coming at this from scratch. And you used to do a lot of radio in your yes. BBC career. Yeah, it was my first love. <laughs> And I want to ask you about that because one of the most difficult things when you're giving a presentation, which a lot of people listening to this will have done, mm. or, or in your case, presenting a video, is what to put behind you. Yes. You know, so there's you and obviously people are looking at you and watching you speak. But how do you go about illustrating your points as well? What, what tricks have you learned when you started to do that? Well, I've learned quite a lot about this primarily through presenting Outside Source, which was a show that I did on BBC News, BBC News Channel and BBC World News for almost 10 years. And, and some people listening may remember that for most of Outside Source's time, we changed it towards the end. We had a big touchscreen and I would stand in front of this touchscreen and pull in all sorts of elements. And with Outside Source, I tried to apply a simple but quite powerful rule, which is that when you're giving any type of presentations, so this could be a PowerPoint to colleagues or a PowerPoint at university or, or any sort of talk or presentation, everything you do, you want to be supporting what you're saying in that moment. You want everything to be lined up. If it is lined up, it reinforces what you're saying. So if you reference some statistics and you show, you say 60% of people do this and you show 60% behind, well, that 60% will support what you're saying. But the mistake that we all make and we need to watch out for is putting things behind us or having visual supports that aren't actually in sync with what we're saying at that time. So the simple rule I had with Outside Source was I would show things as I was talking about them and I wouldn't show them when I'm not talking about them. So you'll know the, the feeling of watching a presentation, a PowerPoint, and there's so much on the slide that's behind the person and you're thinking, goodness, that's quite interesting. What's that about? Oh, that might be coming next. And you're at that point, you're thinking about other things than what the person is saying. When I'm talking, the thing that you can see behind me, whether it's on the television or a PowerPoint, directly connects to what I'm saying. And the moment I move on, I move the visuals on. So there's a there's a bit in the book you might recall where I'd sent a presentation to a conference I was going to be speaking at and it had 60 slides for a 10-minute presentation. And they wrote back and went, are you sure there's 60 slides? And I said, no, it's fine. I'm just going to, when I'm talking about something, it's going to be there. And when I'm not talking about something, it's not going to be there. So that's my first thing. And then the only thing I would also say is that sometimes we use visual supports when we're explaining things or presenting almost just because we feel like we need to add something. 
we feel an obligation that oh, it'll be better if there's just something there. And in my experience, that's not true. We've all listened to amazing talks, amazing podcasts or radio programs where people who speak without any visual support can hold your attention for great lengths of time. So if what you've got to say is interesting enough, have faith in it. If there's something you can show visually to support what you're saying, fantastic. But what you don't need is loads of extraneous animations, information, graphics that you're kind of putting there because you think, well, maybe if I put it there, it'll make it more jazzy or more interesting. In my experience, if the information's interesting enough, just use the visual supports to support precisely what you're saying and don't do anything else. And that leads me to another really interesting question for me, which is how do you know what to leave out? Mm. Because there's always so much when you do in-depth research and you find out so much. And also there's little bits, nuggets of information that you think, oh, the listener would find that very interesting. Maybe I should put it in to try and keep their attention. Mm. How do you filter all that out and make sure well, it, that you're just focusing? It's difficult. It's difficult, isn't it? There was um, There have been times when we are making videos and we know that we've got a particular time limit and we think actually we've got too much to put in here. And so we might change the brief rather than try and squash it in. We might say we need to go narrower here in order for it to, to fit in. But there are a couple of ways that I check what to include. The first is being really precise about what I'm trying to do, which comes back to what I was saying earlier. If you are clear in the setup, that will help you because your answer to what precisely am I explaining will help you choose what you include. Because if you know exactly what you're trying to do, every piece of information you're considering, you can say, do I need this piece of information to help me do the purpose of this? That's a good test. And you'll be surprised how often the, the answer is no. Actually, this is interesting, but on this, I don't need it. The second thing I tend to do is if I've got various pieces of information where I think I do need all of these, I'll include all of them at first. And then once I've organized them and I've looked at how my explanation is shaping up, we'll sometimes experiment with removing elements and thinking, if this wasn't here, would it be okay? Or if this wasn't here, is another element doing the job? Because sometimes what we'll find is there'll be two or three elements which are all three serving the purpose of what I'm trying to do, but actually there's overlap and that we can let one of them carry the responsibility and two of them have gone. But the distinction I try and make is, is often what's essential and what's interesting. There's infinite interesting pieces of information on any subject that we talk about. We can't include them all. It's the essential stuff that we need to really focus on. And so one helpful question I always think when we're going through our videos is, if this wasn't in the video, would it fundamentally undermine people's understanding of the subject? And if the answer is yes, it would, it's got to go in. And if the answer is, well, actually, no, they could understand the subject without this, then potentially it can go. I think that one of the reasons many arts graduates in particular are really poorly prepared to be journalists is that when we go to university, we're trained to make arguments in essays and arguments, but we're not actually trained to explain things. And when I started work as a journalist, I remember having to unlearn ways of writing that were absolutely ingrained and no one really taught me formally how to do it. Do you find that too? Are you sort of the, 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 you started out arguing things and actually what you need to do was explain? You know, I don't quite see it that way because, the, you know, as I mentioned in the book, the, the system I use to explain things 
is rooted in a reasonably intimidating moment near the beginning of my first year at university where I thought, how on earth am I going to navigate this history degree I've signed up for um, without some sort of a of a plan? And it seemed to me that you're right when you're particularly doing arts degrees, history is obviously one of them, you have to construct arguments and you have to construct arguments on subjects you may not have known very much about until quite recently. But for me to construct a good argument underpinning those arguments, or in my case at work analysis, you've got to have got the explanation of the facts of the matter straight. And so for me, because the BBC is quite rightly an impartial news organisation, I don't spend any time constructing arguments, but I am trying to show how things fit together and I am trying to show, well, this event matters because it connects to this or connects to this. And for me, I can't do quality analysis without it being underpinned by properly explaining what the uh, what the facts of the matter are and what the 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 building blocks of that issue are and so i don't know i i feel like what i learned at university was has proved has proved pretty helpful to be honest in in how i go about my journalism but that's just my experience <laughs> maybe you did it as a degree than me um t- tell us more about that first year at university and when you had the realization that you needed to do things differently i studied history at Cambridge. And at the time, and I I don't think it's changed a huge amount, but it's it's a while ago now, 30 years ago, they were eight-week terms. And each week, you would be set one essay. And all these eight essays would sit within a single paper. But the papers were very broad. So essentially, each week, you were being given an essay question on on something new. And you'd be given the essay question, you'd be given a reading list, and kind of see you next week. And it seemed to me completely impractical for me to be able to just read at pace sections of 10, 20, 30 books in a couple of days and then suddenly produce an essay. Now, that I'm sure there were students who could do that very well, but that wasn't available to me. And so I thought, well, the only way I can see a way through this is to be methodical about it rather than just hope I can take in this information and somehow an essay is going to emerge. Rather than solve the problem of of understanding this subject and analyzing and writing about this subject in such a short space of time, I'm going to need to do this in stages. And really, that approach is exactly the same approach that I take to sending an important email to the doctor or to uh, you know having an appointment with someone else or doing an explainer video at, at the BBC. And what I started to experiment with at university in the first year was essentially, okay, I've got this subject. I don't know a huge amount about it. First of all, I'm going to gather as much information as I can on it. Then I'm going to try and distill that information into its most usable form. So I wasn't really interested in long paragraphs copied from other books. I was interested in pieces of information, pieces of analysis, phrases, facts that I could use. And that process of distilling the information down had two benefits. The first benefit was... I had some information in a form I could use much more easily, but actually just the process helped me familiarize myself with the subject as well. And once I distilled all of these pages and pages of notes, I used to have 30, 40, 50 pages of A4 handwritten notes, believe it or not. And then I would think about how can I distill that down? And it was only once I distilled it down and was becoming a bit more familiar with the information I was handling, then I would start thinking about, well, how can I organize this information? 
and I still wasn't thinking about writing an essay at all, I would, then I would think about, okay, I'm going to cluster these pieces of information or cluster these pieces of information. And again, that was helpful when the writing arrived for two reasons. One, that the information I needed was clustered together, hopefully logically. But also, again, the clustering process allowed me to familiarize myself. And so it was only right at the end of this normally quite intense two, three-day period I would only write it right at the end. The writing didn't quite look after itself. I don't want to, to overstate that because at times it was hard. But actually, for me, the hardest work had been done because by the time I'd sat down to write the essay, I'd already spent a huge amount of time handling and distilling and organizing this information. And it's precisely the same with how we make our explainer videos. We'll collect the information, we'll distill the information, we'll assess the information, we'll organize the information. We might put what we call a dummy script around the elements, so we've got an idea of how they might fit together. But the really focused writing of the video is relatively late in the process because I don't really want to be doing that until I'm really confident I've understood the subject I'm talking about. I wish I had been anywhere near as systematic as this when I was writing essays at university. <laughs> well, I mean, it would have been, needs must, really. I didn't really see any other way mm. uh, through it. I didn't feel skilled enough to to just read the books and then go for it. Yeah, which, which of course, I think some people do. And, and I'm sure some people does, can do. Yeah, yeah. doesn't always serve them well in later life, I think. But, Let's go back to emails um, mm. because you mentioned those. And you have some advice in the book on how to write them. I was thinking about this when reading some of the emails that uh, have been reproduced for the COVID-19 inquiry. And some of them, uh, considering the importance and urgency of what was being discussed, are, let's put it, you know, let, let's let's be frank, uh, waffly and uh, are evasive and uh, not really demonstrating the art of explanation very well. What are your rules for email communication? I have five. Um, let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> the first one is that you can't be sure your email is going to be read at all. So we need to be realistic about the information environment we're operating in. You, me, everyone listening to this podcast has far too much information coming at us every single day. We're all making choices consciously, you know, unconsciously about what we're going to read and what we're not going to read because we can't read everything. And so you need to start off from the, a realistic point of view, which is that from the moment you send that email, you're in a competitive environment and it may not go your way. So let's let's make it very clear using the subject and the first sentence to the person you're sending it to that this one, this one is worth your attention. So that's the first assumption. The second assumption is they may not read it all. They might open it and think, okay, great. But if you've written a foot-long email, you're taking a big chance that they may not make it to the end. So one simple rule is, Put the most important stuff at the top and get to it as soon as you can, because every single sentence that passes, your chances of them reading what you've said reduce. More generally, there's there's academic research which shows shorter emails get completed more often, which isn't, I'm sure, a huge surprise to people listening. So one, it may not be read at all. Two, even if it's opened, all of it may not be read. The third is we skim emails. And yet sometimes we write emails in full sentences. We write long paragraphs of five, six, seven sentences in a go. You're making it really hard if you do this for the people reading your emails to get to the information they, they want. And so formatting, if used well, 
can really help people go, okay, the information I want, this event starts here. In fact, coming in for this podcast, your colleague sent me a very clear email which told me where I needed to be, what time, what date, what I could expect in terms of the conversation. It was very easy to read. It was well formatted. Great. The fourth thing I always keep in mind is this is functional. In the end, emails are largely about exchange of information. I would like to give you this. I would like to request this from you. I would like to request that we do these things together, whatever it may be. Cut to it make it easy for people to find the information they want. And don't worry about adding too many trimmings at the top about how things are going and everything, because in the end, they're opening this email for information. If you give it to them in an easy to consume form, easy to find form, it's going to go down well. And then my fifth rule is that the more people included on an email, the more difficult it is. And this is rooted in years of, of presenting, particularly on the radio. I used to do a phone-in on the BBC World Service, and it taught me a lot about how people respond and when they don't respond. And one of the things that I learned from doing that phone-in is if you can make people feel that what you're saying is relevant to them, that you are specifically talking to them, the chances of them responding go up. If they think you're just talking to a huge group of which they are one, they are mu they might think, well, this is kind of for me, but not really, or this is really for someone else. And they're, they're, the chance of them engaging go down. And so needless to say, there are still lots of times in our working lives where we have to send emails to more than one person. But in those situations, I might do things to, to work hard to make it feel relevant to all the different people. But I will say there'll be plenty of times at the BBC where I need to pass on very similar information, maybe not identical information, but similar information to a number of colleagues. Say, let's imagine five colleagues. I will send five individual emails and tailor it to them rather than send them all five one email. It takes me more time, but in my experience, they're much more likely to, to respond because I'm taking time to make sure that I give them exactly what they need, not expect them to do the work to work out what they need. So yeah, those are five things. The last thing I would share on that is there's an amazing academic called Todd Rogers at Harvard, who's a specialist at studying how we consume short written digital communication like emails and so on. And he talks about long emails as an unkind tax. <laughs> And I love this phrase and what it really helped me understand better than I'd seen myself is that in the end, in any information exchange, someone's going to have to do the work. Someone's going to have to do the work to make the most important information consumable and accessible. If you're sending an email, you've got a choice. Either you can do the work or the person you're sending it to can do the work. And if you put that work on the person you're sending it to, you need to be realistic that they may not want to do the work. They may opt to not do it. Even if they do it, they may resent it because they're having to spend 10 minutes working it out. Or to be more positive about this, if like your colleagues, you send a very succinct, easy to consume email, I receive it and I feel positive about them because they've made they've saved me time because I know if they'd sent a long meandering email I'd have had to do the work to to work out where to come for this podcast that, that's that's so true and if you can if you can make it personalize it and actually make people feel that they you want them and only them to respond to that email that is the I think the key yeah, but, and, and also by the way this is sincere it's not a maneuver it's it's no. it's sincere and mm. so I take time over this and and you know my my wife 
Sarah, who, you know, <laughs> has had to hear an awful lot about this book, as you can imagine. You know, we were talking about this in the in the kitchen one one morning the other day, and I was talking about just this issue. And she came up, well, she used a phrase which I love, and I put in the book because I was so keen on it. She talks about it being the initial investment. The time that we spend, whether it's preparing to send an email, or it's preparing for a meeting, or a presentation, or whatever, from the biggest moments to the smallest moments, if we invest time stopping to consider, how can I consume this in the easiest way to consume, in the most helpful way to consume, it's going to pay you back because you're going to get better responses and people will be glad that you've made the effort. I hope. That's the theory anyway. <laughs> Are you DJing again soon? I am. I'm doing a night at the social Oxford Circus, Friday, December the 1st. Unbelievable. I have to kind of pinch myself really. I'm doing it with uh, Ray Keith who's a kind of legend of drum and bass and who uh, got in touch with me when I did a six music mix a couple of years ago and um, was very kind and kind of said, if you need any help getting back into it. And I was like, believe me, I really do. So he helped me uh, get some new kit because all my kit was kind of decks and and, and vinyl based, which isn't really gonna gonna work most, at most venues these days. And he even gave me a lesson, which was very kind. And uh, so I'm doing a night with him and another DJ called Chinese Daughter. A bit daunting, but very exciting. Fantastic. And there's more about music in the book. So I recommend that as well. That's also very interesting, but we haven't had time to go into that, unfortunately. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Charles. Thanks very it's much been... for having me. <laughs> the Art of Explanation is published by Wildfire. And if you enjoyed hearing Ros Atkins today, you can support us to keep making bunkers for as little as £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily with Ross Atkins was presented by Ross Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers, with impeccable email skills, were Chris Jones, Liam Tate, Adam Wright, and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.